UX Podcast is funded by me and Per, together with contributions we get from you, our listeners. Help support UX Podcast and the UX community by contributing financially to keep the show running. Visit uxpodcast.com slash support and contribute as much as you can. UX Podcast episode 236. Hello, I'm Pat Axbom. And I'm James Royal Lawson. And this is UX Podcast. We're in Stockholm, Sweden, and you're listening in 194 countries all over the world, from Slovakia to Nicaragua. It's been a while since we mentioned the weather, Pat, but I think this is the first time I can remember that I've recorded this podcast in a thunderstorm. Right. Fair um, mentioning it. Yeah, and I can hear it. And when it thunders, I definitely can hear it. So this is one of those podcasts now where we're going to have some like atmospheric sound, possibly in the background, at least my microphone. <laughs> and today we have for you a link show. And uh, a link show is where we have two articles lined up to talk about uh, that we found during our digital travels. The first one coming up is why designisms are a problem. And this one is by Josh Munn, who is an experienced designer based in New Zealand and has spent the best part of his design career working in healthcare environments. And our second article for you today is how to write compelling user research insights in six steps. And this one is by Nikki Anderson, who is product therapist um, on Twitter, and she is a user researcher based in Berlin in Germany. So I know you have uh, a bit of a backstory to how you found the first article, James. Yeah, well, basically, the first thing I came to contact with in connection to this article um, was a poster, Um, a poster about um, people and listing a number of of, of roles um, within our design work. Um, and and defining what they are and what they kind of really mean. So so UX designer, UI designer, service designer, front-end dev, back-end dev, end users. And I really like this poster. Uh, It it, it appealed to me and appealed to the kind of like um, side of me that likes the plain speaking um, use of language. And I backed up and realized this was one of a set of three posters. And when I realized that was a one of one of a set of three of posters, I then saw that that in itself was a follow-up article to another article talking about designisms or the, the jargon and the complicated language we actually use. So I, I backed up three steps from what I found to actually what we're featuring as an article today. Hmm. I like this one because uh, I, I, I have sections I agree with and I have sections I disagree with. Uh, oh, interesting. First, first off, why, what is a designism? Well, I'll tell you what. I'll, I'll start off by reading the first little bit of the, um, the article. So Josh, he opens up um, by just writing or describing a, a general conversation that he says he has almost every other week. And he says it goes something like this. So, hey, so what do you do for a living? I'm a UX designer. What's a UX designer? UX stands for user experience. Deathly radio silence. 
I basically design apps and websites for a living. Oh, so you know how to code and stuff. No, I can't code. I, I, I kind of do everything up to that point. You know, like the look and feel of the app, what you see, what, how it works. I work with developers, though. Oh, so what do you actually do? So, I mean, all of us, all of us recognize that conversation. I mean, we've, we've all had it uh, probably regularly as this as well. And if not with people in our own branch, with, with relatives, with your, with your mother, um, with friends. Um, it, it, it does happen an awful lot. Because what we do when you describe it as, as say, of a UX designer um, doesn't really say very much. And I think we have talked a lot about this on the show as well. We've sort of almost grown tired on UX podcast with the term <laughs> UX because it's it's not self-explanatory in any way, but it is a term that we can throw around to find our tribes. So you're in UX, I'm in UX, and that's how sort of we find people who are of the same mindset uh, as ourselves, even though we may not know if we work with exactly the same things, we know that we have sort of the same types of goals with helping users with digital so it's, services so it's, often. Yeah, so we've, we have discussed that before, how UX is used almost as a kind of um, a signaling element within our industry to say, hey, look, I'm one of your tribe. Um, yeah. but, but as far as the overall user experience of the phrase user experience, um, it's really badly designed from a user experience point of view. It, it doesn't really cater for other groups of people who might come into contact with it. So Josh, though, um, he he's focused, he isn't he isn't really kind of um, a bitching mainly about UX as a phrase. Um, it's actually a, a bit broader than that. He's um, talking about design jargon, sort of design phrases and things that we use and we throw around in in our work and and what we produce um, that aren't necessarily easy for. Um, people that we work with or stakeholders or um, users of the products we, we design um, can mm. understand. Um, and Josh would like us to develop alternatives um, and to um, try and put an active effort into using those alternatives instead of the convoluted phrases that we have um, adopted. And he describes how the background to how he came upon this really as, as seeing it as a growing problem was when he was at a conference and someone started talking about not only UX, but also CX and BX and PX. And people just love playing around with that term because it's so, it's sexy in some way. I mean, it's short, it has the the X letter. Uh, and so that's fantastic. It's not know it's customer experience. I don't even know what the other two are. Product experience is PX probably. Business uh, experience, maybe? I don't know what the BX yes, one is. Yes, must be. Uh, that really of. doesn't help us at all. It just creates more confusion. So that's going in completely the wrong direction. So what he's saying here is let's go the other direction and go move away as far away from as possible from these terms and try to be as explanatory as possible. Use simple terminology and give background to the terminology uh, and really not use it at all. And here's here's maybe where I where I disagree with some part of, parts of it. He's even saying that we should not be using it with our peers, with the people that we work with. Mm. Uh, and I think I, I understand where he's going with that because not using it with our peers helps us to always use the user-friendly way of explaining things. Uh, but on the other hand, it's when you work within an industry, within a profession, having the same terminology as a shortcut for talking about things 
I mean, it's true for all different types of industries. And I think mm. that that can be really helpful in, it, in itself. Uh, so I'm not sure that you should always avoid it, but you should always be concerned about, is the per person I'm talking to understanding me? And how, how can I become better at describing the work I do and the value I bring, really? Yeah, because I mean, this is, this is, I guess, the essence of communication, that all communication is trying to do is, the re is reduce the amount of guessing the other party is performing in order to understand what you're going on about. Mm. And, and by using simpler language, we're, we're reducing the complexity, we're, re we're increasing the chance that we can communicate in a way that's understood. Right. And exactly what you say, and I agree with you that some sometimes it's going to be um, correct to say um, personas or mm. MVP. But in other situations, no one is going to have any understanding what MVP means, or they're not going to have the same understanding as you, even though they understand the phrase. Exactly. MVP is actually a good example of mm. that. I mean, this, this, almost everyone's got their own definition of what um, MVP means. <laughs> that is a good example. <laughs> and in fact, in, in the project I'm working in now, I'm just starting up a new project. We're taking uh, time and, and putting effort into putting together a glossary of terminology because even the simplest of terms, people do not agree about what they mean. So that's why we make sure that we make a list of these terms so that whenever we use it, especially in documentation, we know what we mean. Uh, and I mean, I think that's a recommendation for most projects. That's that's something to do. We're not specifically in this project doing it for for UX terminology, but for health healthcare terminology. But mm. but it's the same principle, I think. Well, I think that's a that's a principle that any team would need to work on. We've we've discussed that before as well. When you've you've got you've got to have a shared vocabulary within your team, um, mm. or design system, or whatever it is you're working on, to 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 make sure that everyone around you is on the same page when it comes to the phrases you're using, mm. um, and then everyone on the other side of any, any communicating edge you have also is on the, the same page as whatever language you're using outwards from your group, your tribe, your team. Exactly. And one thing I might be feel like I'm missing from the article perhaps is, is this uh, opportunity for actually lis listening more to people. So I agree with that we shouldn't treat people like toddlers and explain it like basic, basic, but we can also have the opportunity of asking people, what do you think this means? And start learning about what do different words mean for different people? Because then it turns into a conversation instead of me just trying to explain something to you without also constantly checking, do you understand what I'm saying? Because even in some of the examples he's using to simplify, there are still words and phrases, like even the word interface. Uh, I know mm. a lot of people don't understand that word. So mm. with different people, we have to use different levels of simplification as well. Yeah, in that sense, it's like peeling an onion, isn't it, I guess? Yeah, exactly. Um, I mean, uh, one of the examples here was, was more mood board. Um, and then, yeah, that's a phrase that maybe a lot of people don't understand what it is. And then describing that as a, um, a collage of images, fonts, interactions, and icons, you might, you <laughs> might need to even explain what a lot of those phrases mean. Um, yeah. Interactions, what's an interaction? Um, mm. So yeah, you'd have to then um sense and respond kind mm. of feel how does the person respond to that they understand mm. the language okay i need to peel another layer off the onion and go uh, one step simpler mm. but if if you've if you've already prepared 
you know the onion that <laughs> you already kind of come to an agreement about <laughs> not just kind of what's the what's the high level um, convoluted phrase that we're going to use within our within our little clique how mm. do we describe that to to people who have, who have a little bit of understanding of the 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 sphere of of um, work that we're we're working within um and then how do you describe that to people who have absolutely no idea exactly but if you've gone through those different layers in advance then it really helps you i guess um present a one a united front <laughs> to us who you're communicating to and i think this really is a call to action that's that's what i really like about it and what i take away from it is that it it actually encourages people and teams to make this effort and that's what the posters are for you put them up in the office you, re- you remind yourself that we can't always talk like we're talking right now. We need to find other ways of explaining the work we do. Yeah, and that's an excellent point, Peter, just, just where I started, um, by seeing the posters. Yes, and exactly. I was really attracted by the fact that, as I said in the beginning of the, the podcast, that the first poster I saw was one that said, people. So keep mm-hmm. it simple. Stop using designisms. And then people they listed these, these, these roles and described them, tried to describe them in a more um, simple way. Now, the other two posters in this set of three... Um, are things and methods. So methods are like personas, A-B testing, agile, and so on, MVP. Um, right. And things are, I guess, I'm going to use one myself now, deliverables, um, <laughs> mood board, um, service design blueprint, wireframes, prototype. Right, yeah. Um, but if if we ignore if we ignore the the, the content in the posters with the the things that are listed, but just keep it to those high level titles. Um, of of methods, things, and people. That's a really good starting point for these discussions. And, and like you're saying about building up a vocabulary or, or at least just doing a stock take of, of what you've got and mm-hmm. working out how you can describe um, these phrases you use um, yeah. in, in different levels of, of complexity. Exactly. Because I'm looking at this list, I mean, there's only what? six on each poster i mean we we all know there's there's a lot more than six within each of these categories in our design world um yeah, yeah you could add a zero or two to some of these and <laughs> you probably still wouldn't run out of phrases um but but as but as, as as buckets of 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 types of phrases then i think it's a really good starting point All right, let's move on to the next article. So this one is titled How to Write Compelling User Research Insights in Six Steps. And it's written by Nikki Anderson. And it really ties into what we were just talking about with words and what they mean, because uh, what Nikki, Nikki has realized is that uh, just the word insight, we talk, I mean, we talk about this thing all the time. We do some research oh, and people go back at the office, oh, what insights did you get? Oh, we, we learned this and this and this. And we haven't really decided how to express insights to make them valuable, uh, which I find really funny. Uh, so what she starts out with is that you, she's realized, well, all the user research in the world doesn't matter if you don't produce insights that organizations can use. So in essence, an insight has to be something that the organization can use, uh, of course. And uh, it has to be based on research. Uh, that a team can uh, use to make better decisions. We know this. That's generic definition of a user research insight. But then she goes on to also explain, well, that is, is, is necessarily wrong, but it puts the idea of an insight into a really small box. Uh, and the thing, the difference is, to, how, how do we make insights be user-centric instead of product-focused? Uh, how do we make sure that 
what we communicate about what we learned, how do we communicate that in a way so we understand that it's a human being having a special need or uh, demonstrating a special certain behavior. Uh, and of course, she's throughout the article always stressing that there are no insights if we actually don't do the research. We have to have conversations with users to actually get any insights. It's not we can't sit around uh, at a meeting in uh, in the office with our our colleagues and have insights about users. That's just just not the way it happens. Insights come from talking and engaging with users themselves. And so she goes on through some things that are not insights, uh, listing. Uh, an observation. An observation is interesting. You can observe a user doing something uh, that, that may be interesting, uh, but the insight, the the observation by itself, is not an insight because it doesn't tell us why they're acting in a certain way, why they're performing, what you're observing them doing. Uh, which ties. That's what I was waiting for. Is like okay, if if um, what what is that little added little sprinkling of, of fairy dust that makes the observation? into an insight. And this what like you and I always talk about when we talk about quantitative data. It's really interesting to see that we have this bounce rate, but always when they come to this page, they leave. Uh, but that's not the insight. The insight is why they leave. So we have to dig deeper. Ooh, you say, oh, you say, it was, was fascinating. Um, sorry, I'm going to the middle of your experience. <laughs> but the, what I'm actually working on today is um, an analytics report where I'm, I need to deliver a lot of insights based right. on hmm. quantitative um, data hmm. and and it's in, it's fascinating to see that okay they're not insights unless we do actually have real user um, contact i'm hmm. not going to have that in this bit of work i'm doing i'm just looking at the data hmm. um, but i'd argue that there are some insights that i can um, come to by looking at a combination of things that are there in the data um I mean, okay, you could, maybe you'd, it'd be nice to, to um, validate them even more by talking to them. Um, but certain things you can see, a certain type of behavior um, is evident from the data. And you can even infer... Ah, but then you're inf- saying you can, evidence as well. You can, in, you can inf- well, evident and infer why they're doing it. Yes, which takes me on to this point, because this is one that I really actually... I did a double take and I realized, well, I've been... Under, I've been well. I don't have to, she, we don't have to say that she's right in every aspect of the article, but I do take to heart everything she is saying in the article. Mm. And, and when she's explaining this about the difference between a finding and an insight, that's when I realized a lot of the stuff that I'm calling insights are just findings. Um, mm. Because something with a short shelf life is her point. Insights tend to have an impact over a few months or even years, and they can influence the future product strategy. But if you have something, uh, information about something you want to solve today, that you, you see people making mistakes in, in a checkout form uh, or, or checkout process, that's just a finding, and you fix that. Hmm. That's not an insight. It's just something you realize. That's it's almost like a bug. Okay, so we see that's a problem, and so we fix it. That's a finding. Yeah, no, I can see that. I can get that. Yeah, with findings. Yeah, because you're looking at the, um, you're looking more within what's going on mm-hmm. and seeing something you can tweak within it. Exactly. Um, so the findings are still really important, mm. but they're not insights. <laughs> mm. And also uh, back to, uh, of course, the point that we always make when we do research, research, just because people tell you that they have a preference or they like something, that's, of course, also not an insight. You have to dig deeper into the root cause of 
that preference, of course. So, so she's, she sort of goes into really identifying things that I would probably, in many projects, have called insights. But if we are to declare an insight and finding insights as something useful to the project and to the organization, we probably should agree like we were talking about in the previous article, agree about what an insight is. <laughs> what an insight is, what a finding is. Yes, uh, exactly. All, all these other variations of yeah. things that are very close to each other. Mm. Yeah, interesting. What she's saying here is they're breaking it down into, so it has to be a discovery about human behavior that leads to, gives you new understanding. It's information that challenges what we believe. So maybe it perhaps negates or changes the way that we've viewed users in the past. Uh, or it's knowledge uh, that reveals fundamental principles that drive us towards seeing users in a new way. So understanding the user's mental models on how th something should work. So it's always coming back to the user and how they're behaving and how they're thinking, uh, the, the thinking behind their behavior, really, why they're doing stuff. Those are the really interesting insights that you can use to design things that are sustainable across a longer period of time. So it's I not just so. about finding stuff to fix. It's not like doing a usability test. In a usability test, you often have findings. But in research, you have insights, mm. is what I'm sort of taking away as well. well one thing I, I, I really like from what she's written, and, and something I try to bake into my work, even if I am doing insights that maybe aren't really insights sometimes, um, is this whole thing about recommending the next steps. Um, it's it's really valuable that, um, and I, for me it helps even, um, it helps you in the situations where um, sometimes you can't give a concrete next step. I can't I can't say fix that, do that, you know, mm. design, do this design or change or so on. Sometimes the next step is more research, mm. for example. In fact, quite commonly I'll, I'll I'll recommend more research, and this is I deal a lot in quantitative um and you know analysis and, and analytics and i need the qualitative research to go on top of that sometimes i can't exactly. say why and to help yeah. me communicate that then i will i will recommend and i'll maybe even recommend a type of um, qualitative research to do to, to help you understand the why behind what i i've i've seen exactly yes and then she goes on to have a specific structure and that's the the number six from the title of the article is the six steps to actually uh, explaining a, a, a an insight. Uh, and, and without using her example, I was going to try and see. I had an experience earlier today because I'm uh, looking to buy a printer, uh, like one of these that you can scan with and uh, print with, obviously, <laughs> and, and copy with. So what do you mean buying a printer? Doesn't print You're printer. so old-fashioned. And it has to have an ADF, an automatic document feeder. So I did some research uh, and realized that this is probably the printer I want. And I found a really good price for it on a website. And I went to the website and it says, well, we don't have any in stock, but we think we may have one, one ready for delivery in two days. So there's a chat button. I click the chat button and I, and I go, so I see that this printer is maybe uh, be, being able to be delivered in two days. Can you give me more information? Because that's just two days away. And he, oh, no, I have no information. Okay, thanks. And I said, when I, as soon as I said, okay, thanks, he closed the chat, which was hugely interesting to me because I was expecting, is, is there anything else I could help you with? Is there, mm. uh, is there any other product that you, you're interested in? As, I mean, <laughs> what you would expect from a salesperson. Um, and I realized that from this, uh, I, I, I realized that, I actually was interested in buying from this company. I, and if he had 
asked me about, so what is it that you were looking into uh, and why I was looking for that printer, I, he could probably have sold me another printer with similar specs. Uh, and that's a finding <laughs> that mm. I wasn't satisfied with the service and th that he could probably have sold me something. But the insight is just because uh, you don't have the product I want doesn't mean I don't want to buy from you. And if you ha if you express that as an insight, I mean that opens a whole plethora of, of different things you can do to actually introduce other products to people, even if they're not finding the the product that they want. Or spin off other research questions from that, because yeah. just just that fact that that mm. that insight that you said there isn't the end of the story. Yeah, you, yeah. I mean, yes, exactly. You can you know, always how how you receptive. You know, how can you um, how are you uh, receptive to what type of uh, messaging are you receptive to? What kind of mm. things are you open to? I mean, if someone's too pushy into sales, are you going to be mm. backing off, and you're not going to be interested? There's, mm. So there's so many more aspects to to spin off from from that, which is um, yeah. fascinating. So always go for the behavior uh, and, and not just the what what the action or what's happening. The root cause is is uh, what we're after. Yeah, root cause, motivation, communicating the consequences. Mm. And, and what is also yeah. encouraging here, of course, is in, when you're doing these six steps and how you want to explain the insight is that you express it in the first-person voice of someone using the product or, or service, uh, which makes it feel more personal. Uh, this, uh, this works well with some people and not always with other people. I think the way you present something always ha also has to be within the context of how you're presenting it to, uh, to are you presenting it to a design team, are you presenting it to developers, are you pre pre presenting it to managers? I think that will also uh, have an uh, effect on how you choose to present it as well. Uh, I think designers really really uh, like the way that you pre present this. So often you are, if you are doing user research and handing it over to designers, I think this would work really well. But I do like how both these articles uh, remind us of how easy it is to throw around words all the time, uh, expecting others to have the same interpret interpretation of them as ourselves. And even the words that we are sure that we actually do have in common, like I'm sure that you and I could yesterday have had a conversation about insights and been in complete agreement mm. about what we mean. <laughs> but then we find a third person who, who disagrees and we realize, oh, I'm I'm willing to change some of my perception of what an insight is absolutely so always be able to challenge yourself and and how you interpret your own work is it's really really important i think that that ties in really nicely to at the very end of um Nikki's article she she writes a summary and the the first part of point one in her summary is be grounded in reality yeah. and what you're talking about there that kind of reflection and and considering what you're doing is grounding yourself in reality um, and, and by using user research, use direct observations of users, then you're also grounding yourself in reality. Uh, and the, the last point in her summary as well is, is help solve actual um, problems users are having. Yes. And, and that as well ties in with what we've talked about in the first article, that sometimes the person you're communicating to, even internally, is, mm. is the next step in your communication chain. And you have to understand the problems they are having, understanding what you're trying to communicate. Oh, you said something hugely important there when you said communication chain. I mean, that's something we tend to forget because it's it's this uh, 
whisper game. I don't know what you would be the English term for it. Uh, uh, Chinese whispers is what Chinese we would whispers, normally call yeah. it when playing at school. Yeah, is that's I mean because that's what is always happening in all organizations. So you'd say something and someone else repeats it. But if they didn't understand what you said in the first place, when they repeat it, they're going to repeat it in a way that doesn't make sense to you if they would repeat it back to you. But that is going to be repeated by a third person to another person, and so that again makes you realize how hugely important it is that you actually check that the person you talked to understood what you said. Mm. <laughs> yeah, which, yep, looping back, grounding what you're saying in reality. Yeah. If the other person on the other side isn't understanding you, then you're going to have a real hard trouble getting it any further down the road. James, you've added a suggestion for recommended listening uh, after this show. Episode 129, Beyond User Research with Lou Rosenfeld. Yeah, that was actually from f almost exactly four years ago when we chatted to, to Lou. He was talking about going, well, like the title says, Beyond User Research and the Importance of Combining Your Research with Other Data Points. So um, I actually chose this article before we talked about the articles, but it actually feels even more suitable to listen to. It, it does. Yeah. <laughs> Fantastic. Uh, and of course, the links uh, to that show, to the articles, you'll find them online on uxpodcast.com. And um, if you'd like to contribute to funding UX Podcast, then please visit uxpodcast.com slash support. Remember to keep moving. See you on the other side. So, James, have you noticed that spring is here? Yeah, I've noticed that spring's finally arriving. Yeah, I got so excited I wet my plants. Oh, God. <laughs> oh, see, now the problem with that joke is I see the other meaning in my head. <laughs> oh, the play on words is what I see in my head, and that's unpleasant. And I know you've just bought a new chair. Oh.